How are you out there? Well, we're in 2 Corinthians, and uh, we're continuing to do our verse-by-verse study through this book. We're in chapter 5 of it. Tonight, we're going to look at verses 8 through 12. Let's just thank God for the word, and then I'm going to read... uh, I'm going to read at least 8 through 12, and I'll see where we stop tonight. Father, we thank you tonight for this place, this house where you dwell and your presence dwells, and where we can come in the middle of the week and worship you. Father, I pray tonight, Lord, that as we worshiped you, we were refreshed, and that we were the questions of our heart and the burdens that we carry were all just dealt with in the place of worship. But Father, we transition to the Word now, and worship in the Word work together so beautifully so you've prepared our hearts now holy spirit we ask that you drive the truth of god's word deep into our hearts tonight and again refresh us and revive us and let us see not with blind eyes but with spiritual eyes i prayed in jesus name amen second corinthians chapter 5 starting in verse 8 But we are of good courage and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people, but we are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known in your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that we will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we have lost our minds, anybody? If we have lost our minds, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one by the flesh, even though we have known Christ by the flesh, yet now We know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. Now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their wrongdoings against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Powerful, powerful stuff. If that doesn't move you, I got nothing else. But we're going to look at the first few verses of that, 8 through 12. Paul, again, is pointing out the fact that we should have spiritual courage. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in us. He says, what? Whom shall we fear? What? 
you know, who can hurt us? If God is for us, who can be against us? So listen to verse 8 here. But we are of good courage. There it is. We're supposed to have courage. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is in us. And prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, that clashes with everything in the flesh. Why? Because everybody who's alive doesn't want to die. In fact, if you're alive and you want to die, people usually think there's something wrong with you. And a lot of times there is. Because God has given us a life to live and he's given us some things to do. And you know what? None of us get to check out before we're done and have run the course and have fulfilled our calling. Amen. So we should love this life in the sense where it's our opportunity to do the will of God. Uh, but we should have courage all the days of our life. Why? Because we are filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the point he made in the verses ahead. We don't have to fear anyone. We don't have to fear the events. Right now, we look, the world continues to spin out of control. Israel is in all-out war with terrorism. There is high alerts in all different countries. I'm not sure uh, we're even aware of the alert level in our own nation, but there are things going on. You know, we've had an open border for a long time, and a lot of people have poured through that we don't know where they are right now. Now, I'm not trying to scare you because we shouldn't be scared. You say, oh, pastor, when you see what this is happening and that's going on and this and these people got plans for us and this and that. But you know what? We are gods and we are headed for heaven and we're filled with the spirit of God and God is going to take care of us no matter what. Amen. So it's natural to feel comfortable in our earthly bodies, you know, and that's the, the thing here. To be absent from the body, we, we would, what? We would rather be absent from the body and be at home with the Lord. So it's comfortable to be, you know, I mean, it's natural to be comfortable in our earthly bodies because it's all we've ever known. It's kind of like the fish out of water paradigm there. You take a fish out of water, he might look around and go, wow, it's pretty out here, but he wants to get back in the water because that's the environment he's used to. We're used to these bodies. It's all we've ever known. But as Christians, with the promise of God in us, the Holy Spirit, there's something in us that yearns to leave these bodies behind and be with the Lord. Amen? To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. There's something in you and I that gnaws at us to be free from these bodies so that we can finally see Jesus face to face. Now, because of the cross, when we die, we will go, when people die, they go directly to heaven or hell. That's the way it goes, because of the cross. Before the cross, even the righteous dead didn't go into the presence of God. They went into a place called Abraham's bosom. You know this. But now, because of the cross, we have to decide before we die what we're going to do with Jesus. So when we die, we go to either heaven or hell, depending entirely on the choice we've made about Jesus' lordship. Have we accepted him as Savior and received him as Lord? If so, we're headed for heaven. Have we rejected Jesus Christ and said, we don't, I don't believe he's the way, I'm just going to be a good person? We've made our choice. There is no purgatory for people to go to so you could pray them out of there that's a fictional thing made up from the apocrypha to dupe people out of money in the third century where they would say you can pay to get your suffering loved ones out of purgatory just you know write a check just throw in some coin there is no purgatory there's no soul sleep as the mormons say oh we just all sleep there's no annihilation as the jehovah's witnesses say they say well when you die if you're not one of the jehovah's witnesses you're just annihilated you don't exist anymore not a biblical concept there's no second chances after death 
we have to choose now who we're going to serve. Jesus or the God of this world. Verse 9 reminds us that God is God every minute of this life and the next. And whether we live or die, we're going to answer to him and we should make every effort to please him. Listen to verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. So whether we're in this body and we're alive and we live in this life, we should be pleasing to the Lord. Someone say amen. If we're out of this body and we're, we're on to the next life, we should be pleasing to the Lord. Why? Because he's Lord of the living and the dead. He's Lord of all. And so we live to please him. We mean to, and I like what it says here. I like the, the verbiage that's in there. We have this ambition. Say ambition. That speaks of passion and motivation. We have this ambition, what? You know, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Uh, I, I like that. Some texts say ev we make every effort. Uh, we have an ambition. Uh, understand something today that you and I need to be ambitious about some things and not so ambitious about other things. We don't need to be ambitious about pleasing our flesh, about, you know, building our own kingdoms here on earth, about, you know, uh, accruing a pile of money and material things. Why? Because all that stuff's not going with us. But what we need to be ambitious about is being pleasing to the Lord. Do you see how this just is the opposite of what the flesh wants? That's why we've got to walk in the Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit. As we walk in the Spirit, what we want to be pleasing to God the flesh doesn't want to please God. Anyone remember when you were not saved, when you were, didn't want anything to do with God? You were out, you know, doing what you did on the weekends. You weren't thinking, man, I, I hope when I go to the club tonight, it's going to please the Lord. I, I hope when the bartender serves me, you know, when he's done, I'll be pleased. No, you, you didn't want to please the Lord. You wanted to please the flesh. Man, you guys look so serious tonight. But in Christ, we should have a different ambition. We should have a desire to please him and to make every effort to please him. Uh, you know, I thought, as I'm looking at this verse, what if we got fanatical about pleasing God? You know, people get fanatical about a lot of things. You see terrorists in the Middle East right now are doing amazing atrocities. Why? Because they're fanatical for a cause that's grounded in false ideology and false religiosity and they're doing barbaric things and they think they're pleasing God imagine if Christians got fanatical about living the word about preaching the gospel about pleasing the Lord wow I pray God does that in me I pray God does that in you that we would get fanatical, not just lackadaisical, not just take it or leave it, but really excited, really ambitious about living in a way that pleases the Lord. Verse 10 is a sobering reminder as to why we should be ambitious about pleasing the Lord. Listen to verse 10. For you must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Uh-oh. At the end of life, there's going to be a judgment. Well, if there was going to be a test, I would have studied if I knew. You see, <clears throat> we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive compensation for his deeds done through the body in accordance with what he has done, whether good or bad. So there's going to be a judgment. 
praise God, and we're all going to stand before the Lord. Now, that's a sobering reminder. Why? Because we should be ambitious about being pleasing to the Lord, so when we stand at that judgment, it's not really, really, really uncomfortable. I'm going to talk a little bit about the judgment that's being spoken of here. We're going to take a look into some of the theology of this so we understand. But we're going to stand before Jesus, and it's sobering to think that no one else's estimation of us, no one else's opinion of us will have any weight on our eternal standing. No one, well, you know, everybody likes me. I'm going to be fine. No, you know, my mom says I'm special and, and handsome. And No, it, no one else's opinion is going to have any sway on our eternal standing or eternal reward. You know, your parents could think you're terrific. You know, y- your family adores you. If you, you know, pastor, the congregation loved you. You had a good name in the community. All of that means zip when you stand before Jesus. Some people are banking on that. I'm a nice person. I'm well-liked. Everybody speaks well of me. I got a good name. Zip. I've come to the conclusion a long time ago. Look, I like compliments. I like encouragement. We all need that. But you know what? People say, oh, you're this and you're that. And, we, uh, and I'm like, thank you. But you know what? What does God think of me? Is God pleased with me, what I'm doing? Gucci, is God pleased with the way I'm serving him? You know, it's not, oh, the congregation, oh, good job. Is God up there going, pew? <laughs> There's a lot of people who get a lot of accolades from man, and they think they're, they're, they're in good standing with God, and the two don't work together. All of what everybody else thinks means zip when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ. What will only matter is what Jesus thinks of us. That's a sobering thing to think about. Every believer will stand before what Scripture calls the judgment seat of Christ. There's no escaping it. Why? Because all of us will be accountable to Jesus. Why? Because he is Lord. That title that that, that implies lordship means something. We need to understand it. He is the judge, and he will sit at the judgment seat, and he will judge each and every one of us. You know, the scary thing about being judged by Jesus is that he knows everything. Nothing is hidden from him. Did you ever, you know, have to face this judgment and they didn't know what you really did? Or, you know, your parents are like, they're punishing you for one thing, but you did 10 other things that they don't know about? Come on, loosen up. They're not here. Just, it's okay. People are looking over their shoulders. My parents are here. I got to be careful. So, you know, Jesus knows everything about us. There's nothing hidden from him. He knows everything we've done, everything we haven't done. Every thought, every word, every deed is known by him, is chronicled, and and we'll answer for it. When you think about the fact that Scripture says we're going to give an account for every idle word, look, if that don't want to make you put a couple pieces of duct tape over your mouth then you're not getting the seriousness of that thought. Think about some of the trivial drivel that comes out of our mouths. Oh, Wednesday night. You're like, we came on Wednesday. Don't pick on us. 
But this is something to sober us up, something for us to think about, that Jesus will be the judge and that he knows everything and only his opinion matters of us in the end. The judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment in the sense of we're going to be judged to whether or not we are going to go to heaven for eternity. It has nothing to do with our salvation or our eternal standing. Why? Because salvation is a free gift. Jesus is not going to get us up there and go, okay, I know that you accepted me and you served me, but let's see if you made the grade. Let's see if you made the cut. Oops, sorry, you just missed it by that much. You got a 64, 65 is passing in heaven, I'm sorry. No, it's not about our salvation. That's not what happens. No, it's a different judgment. The purpose of the judgment seat is to compensate us. Look what it says, to compensate or reward us for the good things we've done in in the body and then to receive loss over the things that we did that were not good, amen? But it has nothing to do with our salvation. In fact, I'll show you in 1 Corinthians 3, right, this down 1st Corinthians 3 11 through 15 this is exactly what the judgment seat of Christ is all about now the judgment seat is only a judgment for believers this is a believer's judgment there's another judgment for unbelievers we're going to talk about that in a minute 1st Corinthians 3 11 through 15 describes the judgment seat of Christ for no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid which is Jesus Christ Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet only so as through the fire. There's a description of the judgment seat. So all of our deeds, what are we doing? Everything we did, everything we thought, everything we didn't do, all of our works are going to be tested. How are they going to be tested? By fire. If they're wood, hay, and stubble, how many knows what happens to wood, hay, and stubble in a good fire? Poof. Gone. The worthless things, the the waste of time things, the fleshly things that we did are burned up. And there's a loss. But there are things that we do that are good and they produce a reward. And and there's going to be a reward for us. The gold and the silver and the precious stones. See, that should be our ambition to please him by doing what pleases him. And it's it's that gold and silver and precious stones. A lot of what we do is wood, hay, and stubble. And it's going to be burned up and we're going to suffer loss. But there again, notice at the end it says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Okay, we get that. But listen, but he himself will be saved. See, salvation is a free gift. The, the judgment seat of Christ is not a judgment to whether or not we'll spend eternity in heaven. It's a believer's judgment to reward us for the good works that we've done. Amen? So it's a good thing. Now, the lost will face a different judgment. The scripture calls that the great white throne judgment. Again, if you're taking notes, write it down. The great white throne judgment. And it is described in Revelation 20, 10 through 15. Revelation 20, 10 through 15. Now, this is not a believer's judgment. If you're, a, if you're in the great mass of people that come up and God pulls them out of the dead and, 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 and they're all standing, if you're in this crowd, you're in trouble. 
Because believers don't stand before the great white throne judgment. They stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is an unbeliever's judgment. And here's a description of what exactly it's going to be like in Revelation 20.10. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it for whose presence the earth and heaven fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, and the, the implication is these people are spiritually dead, and some of them were physically dead, but they are spiritually dead. The great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and hell gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each according to their deeds then death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire this is the second death the lake of fire and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life he was thrown into the lake of fire the great white throne judgment is a judgment for unbelievers they'll answer for everything they've done but because they didn't accept christ and their name is not written in the lamb's book of life they have no pathway to heaven and so they'll be lost for eternity. What a sad, sad thing. Do you know, no one needs to be lost. Jesus died for everyone. People say, well, why would a good God throw people into hell? God doesn't throw anyone into hell. We choose hell when we reject Jesus Christ. Jesus came that we might have life and life abundantly. Yet some people don't want anything to do with Jesus, and you've seen this, and they curse the name of Jesus, and they, they curse the church, and they hate Christians. And because they reject Jesus Christ, there's no pathway to salvation for them. So you and I will go before the judgment seat of Christ. Those who resist and reject Jesus Christ will go before the great white throne judgment. And in the end, remember this, Jesus is the only judge. And he's absolutely just and fair. No one will be able to say, this isn't fair. The sinner who had time after time after time altar call after altar call but refused christ won't be able to point their finger at god and say you weren't fair jesus is the impartial final irreversible judge and we should live accordingly amen verse 11 some of you just exhaled thank god we moved out of that verse Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, that last verse will put the fear of the Lord into you, won't it? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people, but we are well known to God, and I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. Interesting points here that Paul's making. He starts off after verse 10, is talking about judgment and rewards and things being burned up in the fire. He mentions the fear of the Lord, which seems appropriate. Now, the fear of the Lord is not dread or terror or that we should come unglued and be, you know, horrified in the presence of God. No, the fear of the Lord is respect and awe. You and I as children of God don't need to grovel or, you know, in his presence, but we do need to respect and fear the Lord. And that should, that should, you know, make us ambitious to please him, amen? Why? Because he is the final judge and only his opinion matters. 
And of all the ambitions we have, our ambition should be to please the Lord. So Paul introduces this idea of the fear of the Lord, which is appropriate, uh, knowing that all of us will face judgment, that all of us, whether saved or lost, are going to give an account for the deeds we've done in this body. Now, the fear of the Lord's primary purpose is to restrain us from reckless living, from sinful behaviors, and from wasting the precious gift of time that God has given us. Why does the Lord want us to fear him so he can, you know, you know just flex his holiness over us? No, he wants us to fear him so we won't waste what he's given us. So we won't live recklessly. Do you ever see a person that doesn't have the fear of the Lord? And as a Christian, you look at them and go, my goodness, the way you're living is so reckless. You got one foot in hell and the other foot on a banana peel. And they're just like pushing it. You know, they're pushing it. You know, people who push the envelope and they're just like, they're one breath away. They're out there, you know, doing all kinds of things that could bring their life to a sudden end. Think about people in, organized crime and criminals and all this stuff do you realize you know i'm italian you see all these movies and i I never liked any of that i don't romanticize it it's grotesque to me to think that people would live uh, dirty filthy heathenous immoral lives and be a breath away from hell for eternity there's nothing romantic about it it's reckless and the fear of the lord keeps us from living recklessly The fear of the Lord restrains us. We need to get the fear of the Lord. Our generation needs to fear the Lord once again. The Bible talks about in the last days, people will be fierce, lovers of self. And we see these attributes happening in our generation. People are fierce. They don't respect any authority. And they don't respect God and they don't fear God. And they don't fear the judgment that awaits us all. God is help those who are so deceived that they are recklessly driving towards a Christless eternity. Father, I pray that you open their eyes up and save them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's remember Jesus is the judge and the fear of the Lord is what we need. Uh, In this verse, uh, Paul serves up the fear of the Lord to motivate us to preach the gospel to the lost. Everything I just spoke about there should motivate us to think about those people around us that are lost, that we love, that we need to share Christ with. Why? So then they won't have to face the white throne judgment. So they won't wind up in the lake of fire. Amen? You and I are the mechanism that God uses to bring the gospel to those outside the church. And you and I are the mechanism God uses to snatch souls out of the fire and take them off the wrong path and get them on the right path. Amen. The second part of verse 11, uh, Paul says this, but we are well known to God. That's a, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? Are you, are you with me tonight? Did you wilt? Did you faint? Did you die? If somebody says, hey, God knows me, he knows my name, God and I are tight. That's basically what he just said. We are well known to God. And that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? That's a statement that's born out of relationship, amen? 
Not that, well, I might be a Christian or I might serve God or I might be saved. No, that, that you know that you know that you know that you're born again, that you're filled with the Holy Spirit, that God's hand is upon your life. Come on, Paul says, we are well known to God. A very bold statement. We should be so invested in doing God's will, so close to him in prayer and in dedication and consecration that we should know without a shadow of a doubt that God knows us as well to know him and to be known by him, the greatest treasure of this life. Paul says we are well known to God. And when he says we, he's talking about his companions that are traveling with him, that are doing the missionary journeys. These were the men that God had put around him, uh, that they were anointed, they were fellow workers. And when he says we, he's talking to the churches, he's talking to the Corinthians, and he's saying we are well known to God. Why? Because we are dead center in the, uh, we are dead center in the will of God. We are pleasing the Lord, and he's with us every step of the way. The last part of verse 11 is also interesting. It says, I hope that we are also well-known in your consciences. What is he saying there? Well, because of the gospel Paul preaches and because of the theology that God is pouring out through him and because of the move of the Holy Spirit in his life, he's saying what I say and what I minister and what I speak to you should affect your conscience. And so he's saying, I hope that we're also well-known to your conscience. Meaning what? That you, you, you take, you know, the word that's spoken, the theology that's coming through, the move of the Holy Spirit, and you weigh all that and you, you react accordingly to it. You know what a scary place to be in life is? When you can sit in church and you can listen to the word of God preached under the anointing and you don't feel a darn thing. There's multiplied millions of Christians that are cold and hard and, and deaf, dumb, and blind to the things of the gospel. Why? Because they allowed their hearts to become hard. And seeing, they don't see. And hearing, they don't hear. Wow. God, circumcise our hearts again. Keep us tender. Let our consciences convict us when you can be in sin for years and years and the preacher is preaching about that sin and you're like, I'm not changing. When you're in pornography or adultery or fornication or drunkenness or drug use and, and, and the Holy Spirit can hit right on it, I don't feel anything. I'm not changing. Nice sermon, pastor. I'm gonna go back to do what I wanna do. It's a dangerous, reckless way to live. God help us if our hearts get that hard. I pray that our conscience is always tender and it feels the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When we do God's will with passion and excellence, our lives will impact others. Paul saying, because of what I do and, and how I'm living and how God's using me, I know that my life is impacting you and it should impact you. And that's why he wants to be well known to their consciences. But we have to be tender enough to have our hearts not hardened so that our conscience can be affected by the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been annoyed by a person that's more excited about God than you are? So <laughs> let's talk about conscience. Come on, let's be real tonight. Come on, we're family, right? Maybe you were at a place in your life where you, you still love God, but you were, you know, you were like a little worn out, taking a little break, and here comes someone, oh, I love Jesus, and oh, the fruit, and everything's going good for me, and wow, and you're just like. <laughs> you know, I'm, 
scrolling on the internet and hear someone there a little bit crazy and I'm just like, delete. You're driving me nuts. Why? Because that, that's our conscience sometimes. When, when someone's a little bit more excited than we are, it affects our conscience. Have you ever been bothered by someone bringing out a point about Scripture and it, and it exposes some area of lukewarmness in your heart? Change the radio station. Have you ever been embarrassed about a sin you tolerated that someone else said, I'm not going to do that? Come on, don't die on me now. You know, it's like you're with a brother and sister and, you, and, they're, and they're like, you know, oh, I watched this movie or I watched this show or oh, we don't have cable. We don't have HBO. We don't look at that stuff. And then you're like, oh, it just got real up in here. These are examples of how our conscience can be affected. And a conscience is a good thing to have. Listen, brothers and sisters, sometimes we should be embarrassed. Sometimes we should be convicted. Sometimes we should be bothered and annoyed. Why? Because God is trying to get us to alter our course and to make a correction because we've gotten a little bit too worldly, a little bit too wild, a little bit too reckless. Talking about conscience tonight. Paul said, we are well known to God and we, are, we hope that we're well known to your conscience. Verse 12 is where we're going to bring it in for a landing here. And it says, we are not commending ourselves to you again. Let's unpack that in a second. But are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Let's take a look at that. There's a lot in there. Verse 12 defines the purpose of Paul's comment in the above verse. He's saying, you know, he's saying God knows us and I'm not trying to puff myself up. I hope that we're affecting your conscience and that's for you, not for us. We're not putting ourselves over you. But then he, he says in 12, we are not commending ourselves to you again. He points out that what he just said in the above verse is not self-serving or self-aggrandizing. We're not commending ourselves. We're not propping ourselves up. We're not trying to put ourselves over you. I'm just speaking the word of the Lord to you. You getting this? Now, there were moments when Paul, by necessity, had to list off his spiritual credentials and had to flex his spiritual authority in the church. Why? Because there were people who questioned it, who, who were trying to derail it and trying to get others to ignore him. And so at times, Paul had to say, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Uh, you know, I'm this, I'm that. I, I studied here, and I was this, and I was that. You know, I'm an apostle by the hand of God. And, and there are times where Paul had to flex his spiritual authority and had to give his credentials to kind of just quell those who wanted to make dissension within the body of Christ. But this was not one of those times, and he made it clear. There were moments when Paul had to say things that seem to almost be something that would puff him up. But really, it wasn't because of ego Paul said these things. It was because he loved the body of Christ and didn't want it to be tricked or confused or derailed by those who were trying to undermine the gospel. Now, Paul didn't do things out of ego. Say ego. Not ego. That's a waffle. Ego. That's the part of you connected to your pride. Say pride. Mm. Just notice the people who won't say, never mind. Our egos, all of us have an ego. 
all of us have pride to deal with. Let me say a few things about the ego. We should all be very conscious about keeping our pride in check. You know, humility is a perishable attribute. What I mean by that is you can be humble sometimes in life and you can even move through long seasons of humility, but then all of a sudden the enemy could get in there, stir up your flesh and whip you up and lather you up into a state of pride. Sometimes all it takes is one person to set you off. Come on, anybody else out there? <laughs> you with me, Ricky, right? Just one comment, one person, just one. I was humble. I didn't think much of myself. The, the word, you know, the prophet said to Saul, he said, when you were little in your own eyes, did you not rule over Israel? Did, you know, when you were small in your own sight, and then all of a sudden, whoosh, whipped up. And, and it's good for us to think of Saul, the two, the two different Sauls, the humble one and the proud one. The humble one got to rule the nation. The proud one got to fall on his own sword and kill himself because the Amalekites were about to destroy him. Wow. There's a difference between humility and pride. All of us have an ego. All of us have pride, and we need to keep it in check. You know, we all know a lot. We all know people who toot their own horn. Anybody know the tutors out there? You get around a proud person, man, and they all, all they want to talk about is themselves. You can't even get a word in edgewise. They start off talking about themselves. They continue talking. About, and then if you try to say something, they change the subject so they can talk about themselves. <laughs> Come on, we've all, is it just me? Do I just attract these people or no? All right. So they're out there, right? And we all know people who, who do this, and they're, they're full of pride, and they got a big ego, and they like to toot their own horns. And, and the thing that we should notice about that is it's very off-putting. And I want to say this. It's spiritually unattractive for a Christian to have a big ego. I've, look, I've been around a long time. I've seen a lot of ministries, a lot of ministers. I've been around people that, you know, had big titles, but I couldn't stand being around for 10 seconds because all it was was me, my, I, I, me, my. They had eye trouble, I, 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 I. And you're just like, oh, it's off-putting. You know, it's like somebody tell them. You know, it's like somebody with garlic breath. Somebody tell them. But that ego is a dangerous thing. I don't know how you get to the place where you just, you know, you have to always be tooting your own horn and it always me and my and I did this and blah, blah, blah. You know, God is not into self-promoters in the kingdom of God. Don't be a self-promoter. I see a lot of that in the body of Christ. You know, they make the church a business. They, they make it marketable. They put it on a website. They want to sell it. They want to make money. Okay, I, I'm sure there's a place for that. We need resources. There's a lot of good stuff out there. I'm, I'm not slamming on everybody. What I'm trying to say is when you're a self-promoter and all it is is about you and your thing and your ministry and blah, 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 where's God in that? The ego is swallowed up any trace of God in there. And now you've become a self-promoter. Learn to be quiet about your own abilities and accomplishments. You know, nobody would ever say this in the world. Market yourself. Do the, promote yourself. Be a, an influencer. Get a web page. Put your face everywhere. Isn't that the world? 
That's not the kingdom of God. Be quiet about your accomplishments. Be quiet about your abilities. Be quiet about your achievements in the ears of others. In fact, Proverbs 27.2 puts it like this. Let another man praise thee and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. God doesn't want us to be self-promoters. We shouldn't be ambitious about promoting ourselves. We should be ambitious about pleasing him and promoting him. You and I are ambassadors for Christ. We're not subcontractors for Christ. If you didn't get the business analogy, I apologize. Let another man's lips praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. Proverbs 27.2, a great proverb to remember. And when you get around a person who's full of pride, who has an unchecked ego, and you realize how off-putting it is, remember, don't do that yourself. Don't promote yourself. You know what I found out? People that don't promote themselves give God a chance to promote them. God promotes the humble. God resists the proud. You'll never get anywhere in the kingdom if you're full of pride. Paul was not full of pride. This wasn't about his ego. He wasn't self-serving or self-aggrandizing or trying to put himself above anybody. He just said what he had to say to protect the churches because he loved the church of Jesus Christ. Paul tells the Corinthians that they could be proud of him. Why? Because he's fulfilling the purpose of God in his life and he's serving the body of Christ. Be proud of the example that I'm giving to you and to every future generation. That's what this is all about in verse 12 here. He also tells them that they can use his service as an example to those who are looking for superficial proofs of Christianity's authenticity. Look what it says here. We are not commending ourselves to you once again, so it's not ego, but are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us. We're an example for you to use. Listen, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance, but not in heart. See, there's some people that they, they want to know some superficial things about Christianity before they get past the surface and see the depth of it. And Paul's saying, you can use me as an example. You can use my life as an example that these people want to see a list of accomplishments, a list of fruit. Uh, you know, they, they want an example to look at. You can use me for that. Because why? They take pride in appearance. They look at the outward. Some people look at the outward before they'll consider the inward. That's why it's important that we portray ourselves in a certain way as Christians. The way we dress, the way we talk, the way we carry ourselves well it's just the exterior it's just the superficial it's just me being me but what if you turn people off to god <laughs> i know there's some things about me that needed to go that if they didn't go they would turn people off he's refining us he's transforming us he's making us into the image of christ rick's gotta go fill in your name it's gotta go and the more it goes, the more we look like him. And then we can be an example to others. And they would look at the exterior and not be offended by it. But then they would get past that and dig into what's behind us and find out it's Jesus. And they could be saved. So a lot of moving parts here in verse 12. Let me read it to you one last time and then we're done. We are not commending ourselves to you again. 
but are giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Let's bow our heads tonight. Father, I thank you for all the depth that you've talked into these verses for those who seek you past the superficial. Father, I pray tonight by the Holy Spirit, you've uncovered truths and principles for us that are, that are gonna convict us and that are gonna uh, enlighten us to, to thinking and, and living a certain way. Father, I thank you for the example you've given us in the Apostle Paul. A man, although he had an incredible resume, was a humble man in the, in the sense where he said, I am the least of all apostles. Wow. Wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, responsible for the bulk of New Testament theology, yet saw himself as the least. God, help us to have that level of humility, to have our egos put down and our pride in check so that we would not be self-promoters, but we would be ambitious to make you known and to preach your truth and your love to a lost generation. Let it be so in us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Give him praise tonight.